Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona, where we help build businesses and connect you with the right people. We are very excited to introduce you today to Jennifer Drago, Peak to Profit. She's the CEO, and I'm sure we have a lot to talk about around strategy and operational development and all the great things that you do to help your clients. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I think you and Daryl connected our producer on LinkedIn Yes. Is how we found our way here. I always love our LinkedIn connections, especially when they're they're here local. So if you could give us a little bit of a definition about your business, and then I would love to hear the backstory that to what led you here. So who is or what is Peak to Profit? Well, Peak to Profit is a consulting company, and we consult with small businesses and medium-sized corporations around strategy and operations. So what does that mean? That means everything from creating a vision for where the business is headed to creating a strategic plan with goals to get there. Sometimes it's facilitating board discussions because I work with a lot of nonprofits and my career has been predominantly in nonprofits. So I get to work with businesses around their growth plans and sometimes around restructuring if things aren't quite headed in the right direction. Excellent summary. What size businesses? You said small to medium businesses? Small to medium sized corporations generally. I work a lot in the healthcare space with senior living organizations and then with nonprofits. Okay, very good. I do remember seeing that about the, the healthcare industry. How did you land here? What has, has this, you know, you woke up one day as a fifth grade girl saying, this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I wanted to very much from the time I was a little girl, I thought I was going to be a physician. Yeah. And so when I started at ASU, I'm an ASU grad, I thought that I was pre-med or I was pre-med. And then I started to take some business classes and I'm like, wow, I really like this business stuff. So I got my undergrad grad in finance. And then um, when it was time to go to grad school, I actually applied for the master's in health services administration degree. They don't have it at ASU anymore. They have a version of it. But long story short, I got into healthcare, but on the administrative side, more from the business perspective. And right away, I was drawn to business planning. I was the uh, vice president of planning services for the former Sun Health Hospital System. We had two hospitals and an integrated delivery system. And that was my real love of helping to put plans in motion to meet community needs. And in that time, it was around building enough hospital beds, having the right service mix to meet your community's needs and make sure that they didn't have to travel outside the community for those services. So that was really the genesis of of that work. And then I continued into the senior living industry. I helped to found a couple of nonprofits in the West Valley. Yeah, so that's why I'm here. I guess I can, one of my superpowers, as I've been told, is being able to see the path from where we are today to where we want to be and the steps necessary to help get there. Excellent. So, yeah. Uh, the senior living, was there a, a desire for you to be in that space or yeah, how did that come to be? Yeah, it was actually, um, again, kind of fortuitous the way that it happened, but the organization that um, I worked for that used to be a hospital system eventually sold their two hospitals to a larger nonprofit hospital system. They also had senior living communities as part of their portfolio. So we actually kept the senior living portfolio. And senior living is actually really aligned to health and wellness, as you can imagine, um, specifically around skilled nursing facilities. But the whole 
everybody's emphasis today is to keep people from being sick and to keep them well and to be um, healthy as a senior. It's, you know, living independently, it's being socialized, it's having, you know, taking good care of your both physical and emotional health. So there was a lot of crossover between the two industries. And I I learned that I really enjoyed senior living as well. And we need good people in that profession. Mm -hmm. I've heard stories not here at the studio necessarily, but just in the news about facilities that are not well run Mm -hmm. or are so expensive that it's pricing people out of the opportunity. And so it's always wonderful when we do have a guest who comes on on behalf of the families and wellness and over longevity and care. It's always good to hear that. So thank you for, for that commitment. So you are overall a business strategist. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the word strategy, I think, is either misused or overemphasized, overused. How would you, based on your practice and, and uh, yourself as a consultant, how would you describe what strategy is? Mm, thank you for asking, because I do think it's very misunderstood and often, often mysterious, you know, strategy. But it's really not mysterious. It's a, having a strategy is just simply having a vision of where you're taking a business and knowing the roadmap of how you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Now, will the roadmap change? Will you have to pivot and adjust? Absolutely. But it's just having that vision of where you're taking your business. That's, in essence, a business strategy. And of course, when you're doing that, you're taking into account all the things that are going on in your environment, in your industry, with population trends, things like that. But it's, it's the vision. And how often does a business owner or a board or both have like a strategy in place before you come to to work on it with them? Do you, are you surprised when, are you more surprised when a a team has it or they don't have it? Well, if they're, you know, I've worked with both medium and large size corporations and generally they have a strategic plan in place. Mm -hmm. What surprises me most often is that it's not front and center. It's not part of their daily operations. Some people can't even tell you, you know, what the strategy is or what the goals are. There's no metrics in place to measure it. That surprised me, surprises me and hurts my heart a little bit, right? When you have a strategic plan and it's in a drawer right. <laughs> or in a binder on a shelf, that's the worst place for your strategic plan to be. Now, the smaller organizations tend to not be as rigorous with their strategic planning. They may not have goals in place. And so that doesn't often surprise me when I get into a smaller organization and they don't have a well-defined strategy. And then I'm sure they embrace embrace it once they're working with you and you help them keep it as an active living document is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. So once you have a vision and you have goals for your organization, it's important that it's cascaded through the organization to all management levels. So everybody has ownership in those goals. It's important that everyone from the frontline employees to you know, the top exec team understands the goals and why they're important. And it's also important that you measure them on a regular basis. You're, you know, measure your metrics. You have a set of OKRs or KPIs, right? Objectives and key results or key performance indicators, something that relates to those goals that you're going to keep an eye on. So, you know, if you're making progress. Right. If what, what is it uh, you can't, what, if we're not measuring it. If it doesn't get measured, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah that's, Scary. that's worrisome as a business. Absolutely. So strategy and goals and keeping it as a living document, working document, everybody knows what they're doing. 
Where does vision come into this piece? Because I know you're a big proponent around a crystal clear vision. Yes. So where does that fall into that? And how do you help people hold themselves accountable to that vision? Thank you for asking that because it's actually what I love to do is a vision-directed strategy, a vision-directed ah. goals process, which means you start with your vision. You have to know, again, where you're taking your business as the CEO, the board, the leadership team. Uh, where are we taking this business? And usually I like to use a horizon of three years. When I started in this career, it was 10 years out. I remember some of that <laughs> that language around the 10-year, the five-year, but three years makes more sense. Yeah, well, in today's environment, you can certainly have loftier, longer-term goals, but your real vision and, and where you're going to put your actions in place comes, in my opinion, from a three-year vision. And I like to get very crystal clear. So not just we're going to be the largest... Uh, semiconductor company in Arizona, but be very specific and create a vision narrative. And a vision narrative is a series of six to 10 statements that descriptively portray the business. So when you read it, you get a mental portrait of what is this company going to be? How large is it going to be? What are our teams going to look like? What's the culture going to be? What are our revenues? What are our profit margins? Who are we serving? What does our client base look like? How do we acquire those clients? So I actually have right on my website, I have a document that walks people through um, a series of questions so they can create their own vision narrative. Even, you know, if they have a, a solopreneurship, if they're an entrepreneur, they can create a vision narrative. What does that do for the team or for the, the owner? Yeah. Having that vision and being able to be so descriptive and so descriptive does a couple of things. One, it's a rallying cry for your team members, mm -hmm. right? So if you keep this document in front of them and you're constantly referring to it, everybody knows where that organization is headed. There's nothing left to the imagination other than, you know, how can I help the organization get there? And I think that's what it really does is it crystallizes the action from your of your team members but it just gets everybody kind of on the same page. So I like to use the example of, you know, if I told you I want to increase my business revenue in the next year, you might be thinking, well, she wants to increase it maybe 20, 20%, 10%. No basis of reference there, right? But if I say I want to increase it by $200,000, which is how specific that vision is going to be, everybody has the same um, metric that they're using and they'll know when they're successful in getting there. And without that clarity, everybody may have their own opinion about what, what they're doing mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and missing the mark if there is no mark that's clearly defined. Right. The other thing that I love to say that a vision narrative does, I mentioned it's a rallying cry for your team members, but sometimes as leaders in our business, we don't always think about the impact that an individual employee can have. They may have a great idea, especially if they're frontline of, you know, how to make your operations more streamlined or how to increase your profitability or your efficiency. And so, again, when they know where the business is headed, they can offer those ideas and feel, them, feel empowered as part of the team to offer those ideas. With that in mind, how often do you have to help um, a business owner or an executive leader embrace those ideas? Does that come into the whole culture piece? And does that come into play in the role that, that you do? It does, because sometimes leaders want to hold that, the goal setting, the vision making yep. close to the vest. 
they feel their own ownership to it and they feel like it's that's their job. And it very much is, but I feel like there's a huge missed opportunity <laughs> if we're not communicating that to our employees and, and in, uh, engaging them in that conversation. Especially boots on the ground who are either, you know, client facing or product facing. They're seeing it day in and day out and probably saying to themselves, why do we do it this way? It would make so much more sense X, Y, Z. Or they go ahead and make that shift when no one else knows about it. Right. And so to have that, that forum and that open communication obviously makes a difference. And then I'm, I'm guessing they are more vetted mm-hmm. and more excited once their voice is heard and those those opportunities are implemented. Right. Yeah. And think about that that type of culture, right? It's the engagement of employees in that culture and everybody truly has ownership for the end result. And that's a place I would want to work, mm-hmm. right? And I would stay long-term. And, and honestly, with our workforce and labor shortage challenges that we have today, I think that this is a really important topic. Yes. And the boards, um, both nonprofit and then, of course, the executive boards for um, for for-profit businesses, how involved do you get? Is it more behind the scenes working with the executive director or the business owner or are you participating in board meetings? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it really depends on the organization and how um, we use the word engagement again, right? But how engaged their board is in their work. Very many times in the nonprofit world in particular, the boards are really helping to drive that strategy of the organization. Mm -hmm. They hold the CEO accountable to, you know, have that strategy be successful. But yes, I've facilitated many board retreats and conversations. And the, and the beautiful thing is, you know, boards, especially of nonprofits, uh, again, which is where I'm most familiar, but really all board members, right? They're brought onto a board because of their talent and their expertise, and they're coming from different industries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether if it's a senior living board, they may be coming from the tech world and, you know, and different areas. And so, what they can offer to um, a nonprofit organization in particular, I, I think, is um, pretty special because of the varied expertise that they have. I've it's been serving on the board for Treasures for Teachers for a number of years, and we all bring something different to the party. And of course, we've had new members, uh, you know, uh, join us. It's fascinating when we have a topic and a conversation around the goals and the strategy. All the different ideas, things that I personally never would have thought of given my expertise when somebody else can come from SRP or from a school district and offer up that that wisdom. It certainly makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you also help and other businesses create those board moments? Have you worked with businesses in the 30 years you've been working, doing this, where you've said it's time for a board? Yes, or it's time to morph your board, right? Because there's what we often don't consider, and again, this comes probably more from the nonprofit world, is that there's life cycles of boards, right? So when a nonprofit is getting started, it's going to be generally you have a working board. You have passionate people who really believe in the mission of the organization and they're doing a lot of the boots on the ground work. And then as it transitions over time, your board needs to be more in development and fundraising depending on, you know, mm-hmm. that fundraising mission of the organization. So, so yes, I would say I generally work with organizations that have a board when they, when I come in, but it's, how are we strengthening the board or changing the role of governance in the organization to match the organization's life cycle? At the end of the day, mm-hmm. and you know you've done a great job, what kind of feedback are you hearing from the people you're working with? Either a phone call or it's an email. When, when do you feel the most fulfilled? What are you hearing back? 
I guess the reason I got into healthcare in the beginning and then into, you know, the work that I do is because I love the idea of having an impact on the community at large. And that's why I gravitate toward nonprofits, healthcare, senior living. So knowing that through the work that I've done with an organization or its board, that they're going to have a bigger impact in some way. So they're going to expand their mission, serve more people. You know, that is always really gratifying just in and of itself. It's interesting that you asked that question because I just received some feedback from a client that um, I had to give bad news to. So we were doing a feasibility analysis. It was in a different state. so, (laughs) But they were doing a feasibility analysis on purchasing some land for an additional location. Mm. And the, the purchase itself would have been viable if their operations were strong from a profit and loss perspective, but their operations had a lot of challenges and their management structure was not aligned to really at the current, at that current time to address those challenges. And so I gave them a series of recommendations and I said, if I were you sitting on the board, it was a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. uh, if I were sitting on the board, I would not endorse this project. And I said, here's the things that would make this feasible, you know, so I gave them a roadmap basically to fix what they needed to fix. But um, I got feedback that, you know, my feedback or that my uh, report didn't hold any punches and that they really appreciated, (laughs) you know, that layer of honesty. But I mean, I had to put myself in their shoes and say, no, this does does not make sense at the current time. Not easy to do, but at the same time, obviously with your wisdom and expertise, that's who people are going to to get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so how great is that, that they, they could, they could sit, sit with it mm-hmm. and take it in? Yeah. And the person that gave me the feedback was a real estate developer who, you know, I knew had, he's got years of his own business experience and I knew it was going to be kind of my, you know, my biggest challenge in working with the board. But he ended up, I think, being one of the biggest fans because he's like, there was no fluff in this report and she, you know, no no punches held back. And, and she's probably right. <laughs> yeah, and she was honest with us, yeah. 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 Oh, that's a fantastic example. I, I love that you shared that for you, it's when you know that you're helping an organization give back to the community and serve at a greater capacity. Mm-hmm. That I... I when I asked that question, I was more listening from a perspective of, you know, when, when someone says, hey, we, we made the shift on our, on our team or we've increased our revenue or whatever it is. So I love that you are you have, that, have that servant heart that says at the end of the day, this is really around making a difference in our broader community. So mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Where do you think that desire comes from? Is it your upbringing? Did, did you have an epiphany years ago? Where, where do you recall knowing that you wanted to be of, of great service? Um, I, I, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I don't think it necessarily came from my childhood, although my interest in healthcare came from seeing my grandparents kind of have their own health challenges and wanting to make it different for them and trying to help them as they were recovering from different surgeries. But um, I think it really came from my very first job out of grad school was with the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association a nonprofit. It was a trade association, right? So they were there for advocacy for the health, the hospitals and the healthcare um, organizations in the state. But we worked on a tobacco tax initiative. We increased Arizona's tobacco tax. At the time, it was the highest in the nation. And we fought the tobacco tax industry or the tobacco industry, which, which was is a hard nut to crack. Yes. They stopped fighting as hard for further, you know, for other people's initiatives, but ours, boy, they fought us hard and we won. And the dollars went for 
healthcare for medically indigent, medically needy populations in Arizona. And I think that's probably where it all kind of blossomed in me that like, wow, we can really, you know, we can do good things here um, and particularly in healthcare. And then going to Sun Health um, at that time in the West Valley, uh, a true community focused nonprofit, you know, where they looked out and said, what are we missing to serve these seniors? You know, mm-hmm. because when they were formed, they were formed to serve Sun City and Sun City West and the West Valley. So predominantly retirement communities. What are we missing here? What can we add? What do we need to add to our service mix? And not always did those services make a profit, by the way. So, you know, they would take profitable services and help them help provide services that weren't necessarily uh, break even because it was for the greater community good. So I would say those two employment opportunities really kind of sparked my servant leadership. Are you seeing that in the healthcare industry and senior care living specifically, that more and more people are serving, more and more businesses, I should say, serving from that place of we care about the community? Because we always hear so many mixed things about our, our medical professionals and money and pharma and all that. Are you finding the, the more that you're in this and, and an advocate for a community that more people are coming and running alongside you or is it still a big fight to be had? I do think that there is um, a number of people that, you know, have a servant leadership attitude when it comes to uh, working in health or health related fields. What's interesting though, you know, and I'm just going to reach into my um, history from the Sun Cities. You know, Sun City was and is the city of volunteers. And so at one point when we were operating the hospital system, two hospitals, we had over 3,500 volunteers. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. So that um, senior population, you know, the greatest generation, which was a little bit older then they were very willing to give back and serve. We've heard and I think started to see that generations younger than that greatest generation are less apt to volunteer. I actually think that that's going to return again with the millennials and I hope Gen X, I'm Gen X, so um, I'd like to say that my generation is going to volunteer perhaps more than the generation that preceded them. But I think we're going to get back more back into servant leadership um, with our younger generations, because I do think that they value um, social impact, sustainability. I mean, they they really have their eyes on some of the most important issues to face our our world today. Agreed. Yep. I see it here all the time, (laughs) which is fantastic. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about best practices for business leaders. Mm -hmm. Do you have some suggestions as it relates to business strategy? First and foremost is, and we've talked about some of these, but I'll just recap, is starting with that crystal clear vision, making sure your employees um, are aware. So cascading that knowledge through the organization, keeping it front of mind, not in a drawer, Mm -hmm. um, which means using scorecards also to communicate your progress throughout Mm. the year. Talk a little bit more about scorecards. Yeah. So scorecards, again, we talked a little bit about key performance indicators or whatever metric that you're going to use or metrics to know that you're succeeding on your goals. I like to have them on a scorecard that's easy to see in your executive team meeting. So I like to have a strategy scorecard. How are we doing on our goals? And then an operational scorecard. How are we doing on the metrics that um, our goals are driving us toward? Yeah. And so, you know, and just a 
glance, you could see how you're doing on both of those. But that is definitely a best practice when it comes to um, strategies and goals. And how often ought to we ought we be reviewing the scorecards then? I would say at minimum monthly. Okay. Yeah, but there are some metrics that you could actually track weekly, and you know, depending on your business, mm-hmm. um, certain businesses like the grocery industry, they're always doing year over year sales, looking at the same week the year before. You know what I mean? So yes. they're very much a weekly operation. I used to work in the logistics industry, which was fascinating, um, and that's moving all the time. All the rapidly. time. Yes. And so, but then there are other um, organizations that just don't have access to data that quickly. So mm-hmm. it can be a monthly. And is data important regardless of the type of nonprofit or the type of business, I would imagine? And and data shows up differently. Absolutely. So each organization is going to be monitoring different metrics for its organization in order to know that they're successful in whatever that is, growing dollars, growing clients, growing impact. But you'd be surprised. So, So the answer to your question is I think data is so important and having scorecards is so important for every organization there are many organizations that don't have scorecards. Yes, they look at their financials every month, but beyond that, they might not be accessing the information that could really help them be better operators. And how often do you find that when you look at what people are tracking and monitoring, that they're really not looking at the right information? Do you find that frequently? I do. I do find that frequently. And one of the things I love when I'm working with an organization, I love to help them structure their operational scorecards into lag indicators and lead indicators. So it's about those. Yes. So your lag indicators are going to be the things we're used to looking at. How many sales did we have last month? How many, what's our revenue last month or last year or year to date, right? Those are all lag. Stuff that's already happened. Right. And this is now, now it's done. Right. Where did we land? Okay. Where did we land? And lead is what is tracking the activity-based measures that help make up those lags. So let me give you an example. So that might be if we're an organization where we're selling things and we have a sales team, how many prospects do we have in the pipeline? How many contacts are we making? What is our conversion rate, right? Those things are going to be lead measures because you know that in order to make sales of X, you have to have so many calls in a week. You have to have so many contacts in your pipeline, you know. So you want to really track both types of metrics, your your lead or activity-based metrics and your lag metrics. So waiting for quarterly meetings or annual meetings, it's all around what's happened mm-hmm. and, and it's difficult to, I'm going to use the word forecast, but I don't think that's the right term, but it's, it's difficult then to make adjustments right. <laughs> and uh, yes, and yeah. make shifts. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And so many organizations, I mean, really your activity of the moment, which is really what, again, how you how it's easier to manage your employees, right? Mm-hmm. It's harder to manage employees against sales numbers from a quarter ago yeah. than it is to say, oh, I need you to make 100 calls this week or 100 touch points or reach outs. I can manage my employees around that. You know, if I had a team of sales professionals, mm-hmm. I can do that pretty easily and I can do that week to week. So it actually, I think, makes, if we have the right metrics, it makes our job as leaders and managers easier. Mm-hmm. Another question about leadership, Mm -hmm. some practices or habits that are helpful for business leaders that we don't often think about. Are there things that we wouldn't read in necessarily a a manual or study at, you know, at a university around business management that you found time and time again as one of those sweet spots that you get to share with leadership? Yes. And it'll be surprising for a half a second and then you'll go, oh, and probably roll your eyes a little bit at me, but um, it's actually taking care of 
as a leader, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our own. Not rolling my eyes at all. (laughs) Physical health, emotional health, our sleep, our nutrition, because we can't be good leaders. And especially if we are a small business owner, I'll take that as a perspective, right? Mm -hmm. I always say your health is your business health, right? right? Because one poor health outcome could take your business down if you're truly the leader of it. And so, but that goes for executive leadership as well. So we want everyone to take the very best care of themselves. If you can't sleep at night for whatever reason, you know, you have insomnia or you're dealing with extra stress in your family or whatever it is, you can't think clearly the next day as a leader. If you're drinking too much caffeine and eating sugar too much, uh, your brain is going to function differently than if you ate well for your body. So, I mean, it sounds just a little, you know, kind of trite or maybe overused, but it is so important. And, and the reality is when you look at those Fortune 500 companies and you look at their leaders, they're exercising an hour a day. Mm-hmm. They're in great shape and taking care of themselves. And it's that's no surprise that, you know, they're operating at that high leadership capability given, you know, the fact that they take such good care of themselves. It's foundational, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It is. (laughs) Yeah, just like having a goals and having a vision in place, being able to model healthy, well-rounded living as a leader and having the stamina (laughs) to to sustain a long, you know, long-term success is huge. Yes. And you just said something really important that I want to restate, which is role modeling, right? So when you're a leader and you're you're taking good care of yourself, you're role ma- modeling that for your employees. Mm-hmm. And what do we want for our employees? Yeah, I mean, as a business leader, I could say I want efficient, effective, competent employees. But the bottom line is I want my employees to be healthy and happy and well-rounded and enjoy life and enjoy their work that they do. Mm-hmm. So... Where do we stay in touch with you and, and how do we find you? There's a website. Yes. So my website is peak2profit, P-E-A-K-T-O-Profit.com. And so um, I have weekly videos on there. We have um, lots of content. You can sign up for a free strategy session if you want any help with your business. I have that vision narrative workbook yeah. on there. And then also, um, I uh, LinkedIn is my preferred platform. So yeah. you can find me on LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash in slash Jennifer Drago. Love it. Yes. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Is there anything that I didn't think to ask that you feel like on your way over, you're thinking, oh, I want to make sure I share this story or this antidote? I think you've really covered it. You've, you've hit the nail on the head and talked about all of the things that I'm passionate about. So Good. thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us and trusting Daryl, our producer and studio manager, to come and spend some time with us today. You bet. Excellent. You've been listening to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from Max 6 Entrepreneur Center in Tempe. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.